Hey, thanks for checking out the Blake Benz podcast. On this episode, we had Tamika Sears, who is the corporate fixer. We talk leadership, management, and all things culture. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. And as always, enjoy the episode, and I will catch you later. See ya. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Blake Benz Podcast. I am sitting down with Tamika Sears. She is the corporate fixer. And for my listeners, you've listened to me before. You know how I feel about the corporate world. Uh, Her mission is to help people become more self-aware so that they can lead from a place of authenticity and self-acceptance. She's told me that her greatest reward that she gets from her work is knowing that she's helping to transform corporate America into a more innovative and inclusive workplace. She calls herself a major game changer in corporate culture. Tamika, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for being here today. No, thank you for having me. Um, I, it's it's fun to be on a show where um, people have the view of corporate that I'm trying to change. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you know, it's funny. And, and for the listeners, I don't, and you know, I have lots of listeners. I don't, I don't know if people who are listening right now are new or if they've listened to the show before, but uh, Tamika, you and I have never spoken before. This is our first right. time. So <laughs> this could be incredibly authentic and really great, or it could be totally awkward. So we'll, we'll see which way it goes. But uh, just going off of what your comment of what you just said, I have zero problem with corporations in general. And I have to always say that because I have worked with a lot of corporations local to me. But there is a there are some negative trends in corporate America. And so I appreciate you being on the show and you know, your professional career being basically let's, let's change how some of these businesses do business. Yeah, absolutely. So, so talk to me a little bit about, first of all, where are you calling in from? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, sunny okay. Phoenix, Arizona, where it's still 102 degrees at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it's miserably hot where you are. Then. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in Arkansas. And so my state's uh, initials are AR and yours are AZ. Yeah. But so, um, a lot of people don't know where Arkansas is. And so I was on a call with someone. They said, oh, Arkansas. Man, I was just in Phoenix the other day. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's, that's nothing to do with my state, but sure. But I, I do have family in Arkansas, so I have okay. been there. Yeah. What part of Arkansas? Henderson. Henderson, I don't know, which is sad because I live here. So. Yeah, it's like it's like some small, like little rural area with like cows and goats and stuff. So yeah, <laughs> okay, cool. So talk, talk to me a little bit about uh, your backgrounds. So for the listeners, I was looking for some podcast guests to add to the show. Uh, came across Tamika. You look like a phenomenal person in general, and I love your message and, and what you're trying to do in corporate America. Let's unpack it a little bit and let's let's figure out a little bit about really what you do and especially who you are. Yeah. So I have been in human resources for a little over 20 years. It's it's all I all I know, it's all I've done. I started out um, like no joke. My sister was like, hey, we need like a personnel clerk when I was like 16. <laughs> so I, that's it's literally all I've done. And luckily, I really like it. So as HR has transformed and and changed, I have as well. Um, I've done just about every facet of HR. And what I really love is the leadership development piece because I do feel like everything starts with the leaders of the organization. And when you have leaders that do the right thing, then you have a company that does the right thing. Um, And I I was actually at happy hour this weekend kind of talking about HR and talking about things. And I said, I firmly believe that when a company does right by its employees, then they don't need to worry about, you know, compliance and laws and blah, blah, because your, your employees are going to be happy and productive and they'll bring in the revenue and, and things will be great. But I think sometimes people forget that you need to be there for the employee, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so my personal HR philosophy is that, Leaders are there to make sure that the employees are happy and healthy and doing great. So I I guess what's, so I totally agree. First of all, I think what's odd to me is how many corporate, so now I work mostly with small business owners. Previously, I was with a firm who was exclusively corporations and fairly large corporations. 
the disconnect for me is I've never met a boss who would disagree with what you just said. Right. Everyone speak louder than words, right? Right. So like what's, what's, (laughs) what's happening there? Because every boss will tell you, well, yes, of course it starts with leadership. Well, yes, of course I have to take care of my people, but yet there is constant dysfunction and Mm -hmm. this disconnect of, of do our employees really matter? And what, I mean, you've been in HR a long time and what's, what's going on there? Saying and doing are two completely different things. So you can say all of the wonderful, rosy things in the world, but what are your actions? And when you say all of those rosy things, um, do, you, do you actually have the action behind it? Do you know what you mean? Do you actually know what you're talking about? So I think sometimes when people say, oh, I'm going to do right by my employees, they're just thinking, you know, I, I pay them for their, their hours, and that's doing right by them. And they're not taking it that, that step further to say, you know, when I was Joe Workerby, what would I have absolutely loved for my leader to do for me? What would I want to come into work and, and have that environment be like? So that's one of the things. And I know it's like when I talk about HR and coaching, like it's like super like woo and squishy. But one of the things that I really like when I talk to leaders who have been in leadership for a really long time is to say, not don't just like envision like when you were a, a you know, a Joe Worker B, what do you want for your daughter? Mm. You know, what do you, what do you want for your, for your son? How do you want them to be treated in the workplace? And a lot of times they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that I want them to be treated how I've been treating my people. Wow, that's a great challenge. I've never thought of it that way, but to really tie in that empathy, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think you point out something really clever is that you know, obviously you have people who, well, I wouldn't want my, my son or daughter to be treated that way. And yet, and not that, you know, not that I guess your employees are like your kids, but a lot of times you, I think you miss out on that. These are people that I'm stewarding. You know, it's my job to be responsible for them and not just responsible that they didn't, you know, injure themselves and sue me, but like, actually I, I play a role in their success in life. Right. I, you play a role in their life just in general. And I think sometimes people take that for granted or they don't, they don't realize how large a role, you know, they play. You know, when, when someone gets called to the, you know, the boss's office, it, it, it is like going to the principal's office sometimes. And you, you don't want to have that feeling. Mm. Well, let's, let's, so you're speaking my language. Let's back up a little bit more. You talked about how you got into, you know, you were this, this, personnel position at, at, I think you said 16 yeah. or you're a teenager. Let's, let's spend a little bit more time maybe as you were first getting into HR, because obviously you, you know what you're talking about. You're obviously very passionate about it. I always, especially people who listen to this podcast, I have a lot of entrepreneurs. I have a lot of small business owners. I like to help paint the picture for how you got to where you are now. Okay. So obviously you got into this HR role and, so, and there was definitely a disconnect probably for you there where you were like, this isn't right. This isn't normal. Talk to me a little bit more about yeah. the journey for you. So one of my very first bosses was absolutely amazing. Like she was the kind of person who, you know, spent time with you, like by your side. She showed me like all kinds of shortcuts in Excel and, you know, got me to think about things differently and um, just really really opened my eyes to how things could be. And she was just, she was just an amazing leader and somebody that you could go to and say, you know, Oh man, like this happened over the weekend. Like this, you know, I just really can't wrap my head around this. And she's like, you know what? Take some time. Like, let's talk, let's process it. She was just a very human person, just very authentic, just very like, this is me. Um, work is not supposed to be someplace you go to, you know, and, and dread, like she was just a, a very, a very awesome leader. But because she was one of my first leaders, I had no idea how awesome she was. <laughs> so then, you know, I, I move on to a different role and I had um, like a, a horrible boss. And I was like, oh man, this sucks. So then I, you know, moved to another, another company with another horrible boss. And I was like, whoa, like what's going on here? <laughs> and so it just seemed like as my um, career grew, I started to realize that hmm. there, there was a definite change in yeah. the way that, you know, I felt going to work every day 
when I had a horrible boss or even a boss that was kind of mediocre versus when I had a boss that really um, paid attention to my growth, my development, who I was as a person. Um, and so I, just from my own personal journey in HR, and in HR, again, we're the people who are saying, you know, you should be this, you should do this, this is how you should treat your employees. And if I have leaders who are horrible, how, how are the rest, how are the rest of the people doing? Mm-hmm. So then for me, it was, it was kind of a challenge to say, what can I do so that other people don't feel this way? What were some of the things your horrible boss did? Oh my gosh. So I had this one boss who anytime anyone made an error, she would just be like, and you knew it was coming. Just <laughs> curious as to why you would do that. It's like, well, cause I messed up. <laughs> And she would do that to everyone. And we would like all joke behind her back, like just curious as to why you would have PB and J for lunch. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, when you have those bosses that, you know, they just have those, those things about them that you're like, why are you so awful? Mm-hmm. I had a boss that would, and this, this happens, I think a lot in corporate America. Um, she would always have a favorite. And if you were the favorite, you were great. But if someone else on the team wasn't the favorite, like they were like, just like, completely ragged on and just tormented and trashed. And then, you know, two months later, she'd have a different favorite and, you know, the person would be like, Oh my God, what happened? Like, you know, now I'm getting tormented and trashed. So it's, I've just seen so many um, bad behaviors. And even when it comes to um, diversity and inclusion, I had a boss tell me that he didn't think that diversity and inclusion should exist because, you know, the best person should get the job regardless. And he didn't think that um, diversity and inclusion was ever an issue. So, you know, when you have conversations like that with the boss and you're just like, "Mm, I don't know if you've noticed me. (laughs) Um, So it's just, it's, it's very interesting to, to, for me to have all of these negative experiences, because I definitely wanted to make sure that other people don't have them. And it's funny to me how sometimes when I talk to people who <laughs> I saw a video from uh, Gary V where I, I think he was talking to someone at a conference and the person said, you know, well, I'm, I'm struggling because I've hired and fired pretty much a whole staff's worth of people over the last 12 months. I just literally there's so much turnover. And Gary V said, well, you're not a, that means you're a bad boss. Right. And he was like, no, 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 no. It's no, it's because, and he interrupts a, you know, in classic Gary V style, he inter- interrupts him and says, no, 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 it, that is the answer. You right. are a bad boss. Right. That's bottom line what it is. And I think a lot of times people, when they think of horrible boss, they think of, well, I'm not like a maniac. You know, I'm not like, I don't scream at my people. And I, I think sometimes it does well to understand that, you know, no, you don't like abuse your people, but you still, you still might not be a great boss or you may be what you call, you know, a mediocre boss. And I think it's worth it to understand, you know, what those behaviors look like. Right. So I was talking to a leader last week and, and I gave him a challenge and I said, you can call yourself a great leader when you're able to walk into an organization with an already established team make sure that they're, you know, getting the right coaching, the right mentoring, the right growth, and establish relationships with those people, that intact team, to get them to follow you anywhere. Because it's really easy for a leader to go into an organization, um, kind of pick and choose who they like, get rid of people, bring other people on board, and then have a team of people that will follow them anywhere. It's a lot more difficult to have a leader take an intact team and really win them over. And to me, that is a hallmark of a really good leader. Mm-hmm. What are some other characteristics that you think are in a good leader? Um, someone who doesn't have their door closed all the time. And I know that sounds really silly and ridiculous, but it can be very intimidating for someone when you're getting to know someone to come knock on the door. Um, another characteristic of a good leader is somebody who does mentoring because you want to give that time. You want to help people and you want to help people grow. Um, another hallmark of a good leader is someone who, does bring people, you know, forward with them. So if you move into an organization as a sales leader and you had an awesome admin, you know, and there's a, a position open at the company, you can say, hey, this position is open and the person will want to go there. They'll trust that you have, you know, their best interest in mind. 
So I, I think there are a lot of things that, that are kind of the unique characteristics of a really great leader. Mm-hmm. Someone who doesn't watch the clock. Um, to me, that's like one of my biggest pet peeves is when you have people who are like, oh, it's, it's not five o'clock yet. Where are you going? It's like, really? <laughs> like, every, my work is done. Like, I'd love to get started on my weekend. So it's, you know, the things like that. People that can manage well remotely. People that can make connections with people remotely. Um, people who allow people to make mistakes. Because if you don't allow people to make mistakes, you're really closing the door on innovation. Mm-hmm. Well, and it feels like it feels like you could bundle all of those things that you just said as like a top 10 list and you could throw it up on a blog. And, and again, it feels like, anyone could read that and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, check, 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 check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet, and I don't know if it's just because there's so much noise that people, or maybe just maybe it's just that people just don't really want to change in that, you know, this is what comes natural to me, you know, checking the clock, that's just who I am, I can't help it. So I don't know really what it is or what you've seen in your experience. In mine, it's, um, it's, it's people who they're unwilling to change because they're very ego driven mm-hmm. or very title driven. Mm-hmm. And so as you begin talking about different behaviors, it's like, eh, do I really want, I mean, do I really need to be a mentor? Do I re- can't they just do their job? I mean, that's why I hired them. Like, do I really need to? And I, and, I hear that a lot. I hear so, that a lot. So what's, what's your answer to it? So I can steal it and use it with my own coaches. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what, what I, what I say is, again, I, I kind of reflected back on them. If you, if you were in their shoes, what would you want? When you say that you want them to, to do their job well, what are the tools that you're giving them for them to do their job well? Um, I think a lot of times, especially with high level leaders, it's, it's about self-esteem. Honestly, I think that people who have the biggest egos have the lowest self-esteem. So sometimes it's a matter of helping them understand what their strengths are, mm-hmm. helping them understand that it's okay to have weaknesses and you need to kind of supplement your team with the people that compliment you rather than the people that are going to make it seem like you're the smartest person in the room. Mm. Yeah. One of my best bosses was a CEO who was incredibly transparent in the sense of, Hey guys, I'm not good at this. Yeah. And it wasn't like out of pity or like, you know, or out of like defensiveness, hey, I'm not, I'm not good at this, so don't bother me with it. It was, hey, we're, it, it kind of was like this, we're a team together. Like we mm-hmm. complement each other. And I felt like I, I guess I felt like I mattered in the sense exactly. of, I don't know, I don't know, I can, I'm kind of just now formulating this, but. Yeah, and, and that's, in that sense of mattering, that sense of belonging is huge. Mm. Um, that will, that will keep you on a team. If you mm. feel like you're needed, if you feel like you're wanted, you feel like, you're contributing, that will keep you on a team. Mm. If your CEO had said, you know, oh, no, I, I, I've got that. I can handle that. You know, how wanted do you really feel? Mm-hmm. Well, and it feels like a lot of organizations, especially from the HR component, that the majority of time is spent on compliance. And yeah, <laughs> yeah well, and like the, like the actual talent and development, which I know some large organizations actually have that, mm-hmm. that division, but the actual development piece of it is like more, sometimes it feels like it's more of like an inspirational, oh, we have extra money, let's do, and like on the very simple side, it's like, let's do a team building. But then like on the larger side, it's like, yeah, let's do a leadership development in- initiative. But it's it's kind of back of mind or um, yeah. just not the focus, I guess. But it feels like HRs get a little misaligned sometimes. And I think that's where the, the shifts are because you know, HR, as far as being that kind of compliance cop, I think is, is very old school. There are um, outsourced companies that you can much cheaper than an HR person use for compliance. Like that is not the best use of an HR person's time at all. Like if, if HR, if that's what you're doing, stop. Like that is, that is a very little value to an organization. Um, I think what we need to do is work on the talent, work on the leadership, and do the things that are that are going to be valuable to help that organization be successful in the long run. Mm-hmm. What, but what encouragement do you have? Because because it sounds like you've worked with, with quite a few HR departments, and I have as well. Where sometimes the HR person is stuck between a rock and a hard place in the sense of they understand they understand the development piece of it, but also they are constrained by budget or mm-hmm. by you know. And so it's it's 
I call it a rock and a hard place because it's like their leadership is saying, go develop our people. And yet we don't necessarily want to throw money at it. Yeah. So one of the things that I think people, people spend a lot of time, um, I think on the wrong things. If you're worrying about content, if you're worrying about, you know, where am I going to get money to pay for this training? Create it yourself. Like as HR people, like we have that knowledge, create it yourself or, you know, put together a, um, a group of, of other HR people like in your local area to have a mastermind where you can get content, where you can do training together, where you can kind of swap out and say, okay, I'm going to go over to this company this week. This person is going to come over here and talk. Um, one of the things I really love about my full-time job now, because I work full-time and I coach, and I was we're able to do things like that without anyone even blinking an eye. Like it's just, it's what is expected of us. And I think that's where companies need to get to is that should just be expected of the HR people to have innovative solutions. So if there's not budget, you don't need it. I created a lunch and learn monthly lunch and learns with literally zero money for a site of 800 people. Like you don't, you don't need budget. What you need is mind. You need innovation. You may need help, but help most times is free. Mm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, it's, it's, it's making me think of owners who I talk to who are trying to do, they're trying to change things about their business and they're, they're rubbing up against, well, I don't have the money to make those changes. And it's realizing, okay, well, how you're, what you've envisioned is something that's much uh, more expensive than it necessarily has mm-hmm. to be. There's actual tangible simple steps that you could be taking today. Right. Um, It reminds me of one boss who I was talking to who was like, you know, I can't afford to do any kind of like training with my people or, or, uh, you know, do like a 360 or anything like that. I said, well, you know, a totally free version would be to actually ask your people what they think about you. Right. And he was like, you mean like actually go talk (laughs) to them and ask them? And I was like, yeah, ask them how they would rate you and what they think about you. And well, I wouldn't want to do that. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, because what if they say I'm not doing a good job? And I was like, that's the whole point. That's right. why you would want right. to know. But it's interesting how people don't always even seek out the simple answers to things like that. Right. So it's like you have CEOs that have their kind of communities of practice. And I think as HR people, we need to do that as well. We need to, to get together. We need to partner. We need to have best practices that we're using so that as HR professionals, we can grow. Mm-hmm. That's good. No, yeah. And especially, uh, it seems like there'd be value in that even across industries. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just because someone's in manufacturing doesn't mean it's not going to work in healthcare. I mean, people are people. And I think in general, people want the same things. And so if you're working on developing your talent, uh, you're not necessarily doing technical training. Like I'm not going to teach someone how to um, create something or do any type of engineering like that that would go really badly. Um, but across industries, you can develop, develop your talent. Mm-hmm. What do you do about a boss who, because I've run into this before as well, where it's like the owners are totally bought in on leadership development. But the problem is that the things that the, let's say maybe the middle band, like the middle managers mm-hmm. who are being developed, the problems they see and want to change are being protected by the actual owners. And so when you go to the owners about changing, maybe certain things about culture, the certain things about process and owners say, owners say things like, well, you know, we don't, we don't really want to change that. I really don't want to, we really don't want to do that. And yet there's sort of like this, this uh, tension now between the people that you're developing, you're trying to help them be more innovative, but with innovation comes change. But yet the people who are, I guess, footing the bill, so to speak, aren't really, you know, and, and maybe they're thinking more check the box, but right. you know, how do you, what do you do when you come across, across that tension? So one, I try to make sure that the top layer is completely bought in before I do anything else. And so one of the things that I do is I really talk about that, the return on investment that they're going to get from coaching or for, from training, from developing. So if they say, oh, we really don't want to do that. And like, if it's a financial thing, I can say, well, you know, you're going to get money here from, you know, attrition dollars. So you could put that towards this. Or if they say, you know, well, we don't want to do that because we don't, we don't know what that will do to our culture. 
So I can say, okay, you know, here, here are a couple companies that have done similar things and here's their, here's their culture. So I try to always have um, tools to give them to show, you know, what that change is going to look like. Um, like kind of really dig in and do a five whys with them. Like, you know, why don't you want to change that? You know, why do you think that would, have, you know, really kind of drill down. And sometimes what it comes down to is just there's kind of that um, fear of change or uncertainty. And that's when I get all, you know, my, I put my woo coach hat back on and I say, well, you know, um, think about it as, you know, the possibilities are completely endless for there being positive effects of these, these changes. What are all the positive things that could come out of this? We've talked about the negatives. Now, what are the positives? So in a lot of times that does work because they really have only thought about the negative implications of a change. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like you've said woo a couple of times. Have you done strengths yeah. finders? No, okay. I, I do know strengths finders. I'm not a strength. I'm a disc fan. Like that's disc. Okay. Um, but I am, I am, I am very corporate. You know, I'm like a, I'm a, I'm a blazer and heels gal. <laughs> um, and so when I first started doing coaching, I was like, Oh my God, this is so woo and frou-frou. Um, but then I did actually learn to embrace the woo and frou-frou and it, it does work. <laughs> well, it feels like they go together. Like there's, there yeah. is this motivational element, but there has to be a practicality. Yes. And, and I think what has, I've seen burn people in the past is when it is all woo and no practicality, it's kind of like, okay, we did, we did this big team building thing and nothing changed. Right. Like, right. Oh, wasn't that really fun? We, we, we did a ropes course and yet people are still miserable. Right. You know, cause it wasn't about the actual ropes course. It was about, you know, how we do management as it isn't being done any differently. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, since you're immersed in the corporate world, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are some of the biggest challenges that are facing corporate America right now? It, it feels like corporations in general, especially as you get to companies whose revenue is like in the billions, it mm-hmm. feels like like that Fortune 500 world. It feels like um, some are risk averse and are, I think all of them would say they're pro innovation and yet, you know, innovation is costly and it comes mm-hmm. with pain and it comes with, you know, making mistakes. And um, there's a lot that I see there that makes corporations slow. I'd be curious to hear, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you've seen? Well, one of the, the number one things I think that companies are facing right now is this, this fourth revolution. So um, all of the changes coming from, you know, the um, AI, machine learning, things like that, automation that are like completely unheard of. So call center organizations, for example, are starting to use AI to answer calls. And so when you do that, it's like, you're not just, you know, we had the whole, oh my God, they're, you know, everything is offshoring. Well, now it's like, there's not even going to be people. So then what do you do with those displaced people? Do you train them to do something else? Like, so there's, there's a lot that's, that's happening with fourth revolution. I think nobody has really um, planned for with automation, just kind of taking away people's jobs entirely. Um, different, you know, data analytics that are being run that are showing people, wow, we really have been focusing on the wrong things. Um, so it's really kind of turning things on its head because there's been like zero prep for all of the changes that are going on. So what do you do with those displaced people? That's an awesome question that nobody <laughs> really has an answer to. Well, I, I feel I feel kind of torn on it because I was I got into a um, it wasn't really a disagreement. It was on it was basically on uh, so JB Hunt is rolling out or they're close to rolling out these um, autonomous trucks, mm-hmm. which is just wild to think about. Right. And the way they have it set up right now is there there will always still be a driver in the cab. They just won't have hands on the wheel uh, unless it's like rainy weather or something. Right. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine about this. And he was like, well, that's just awful because eventually they're not going to need the drivers. And now you have a whole group of people who are out of a job. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel this tension because I'm like, well, man, the tech, it's awesome from like a technology standpoint, but, but empath- what about exactly. And so right. I don't, and I don't know, like morally, I'm like stuck. So I'm like, well, what's, what's the right answer, well, right? You know, ideally people would be able to be free to do, pursue their, their dreams. You know, what if you have a truck driver that has wanted to be an artist this whole time? or to be an entrepreneur and do something completely different. But then how do you 
where's that money coming from? Like, how do you, how do you finance that? So it's, I mean, there's huge implications to the fourth, fourth revolution that I think people are just not really paying enough attention to right now. There's going to be so many um, displaced workers. I mean, think about it in the next 10 years with, with truck driving, like you were just saying, it's not just the, the, the trucks, but think about all of the services that come along with those truck drivers, you know, stopping to get food. You know, if they're not stopping to get food all the time anymore, then what happens to that diner that they used to go to? So it's just, it just kind of snowballs. Mm. Well, I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, it's not bad in the sense of technology isn't bad, but those outcomes, you think about the diner right. going out of business. I mean, that's, right. and I guess, again, going back to that tension, it's, you know, the people who survive are the ones who innovate, right? So the diner, if the diner goes out of business, there was maybe an opportunity there for them to expand to a different niche of people. And they didn't. And, and, and so, you know, part of it is, I don't say their own doing, but it's a failure to innovate with the economy. Right. But at the same time, it's again, it's it's well, man, that sucks because that does. was it sucks a lot. you know, it's like <laughs> that's what I mean. It's just so to me, it's like whenever I think about, it, I'm like, no one is like getting in front of this, and no one is really saying, you know, we're going to innovate. You know, think about it. The Amazons of the world, like they've already said, they want to do, you know, drone deliveries and whatnot. Like, they're not going to just say, oh, we're going to be totally just stuck here because we don't want to put these people out of jobs. Like there's going to be people in their warehouse that won't have jobs because there'll be a robot doing it or whatever. But what are we doing to get out in front of that? Are we, like, like I said, are we retraining people? Are we doing something to give them um, work so they can follow their, their dreams? Like we, we've, companies have got to get out in front of this. And I, it's one of the things I think is just when I sit back, I'm like, wow, this could be totally great. I mean, it could be like a utopia where these people are, you know, they were stuck driving a truck and now they get to do like their life's purpose or it could be like completely abysmal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how, but how would they have the means? I mean, are you, are you talking about like universal basic income or like how would they either something like that or, or companies saying, you know, this is how much we're going to save based on doing this. So we're going to start giving really awesome severance, you know, packages Oh, that's interesting. Like that. Yeah. I think I'm too much of a cynic to believe corporations <laughs> would do that. I would, I would, I think that would be awesome. I think it'd be incredible. And I think, I think, I think there is a small sliver of corporate owners who really believe in love. I don't, I don't want to say a small sliver care about their people. I think there's a small sliver that would then take that care for their people to then the next step of action of, yeah, we're saving this much money. We're going to yeah. shave off part of that and give it to yeah. our people. But, but then again, you know, maybe I'm too cynical. I don't know. I mean, it's it's my hope that that they will. I don't think that universal basic income will pass. I think it would be awesome if it did because that is one way to get in front of this. Like I said, if the Amazons of the world did say, okay, this is how much we're saving, um, these all of these people are going to be displaced. What are we going to do to take care of these people? Mm -hmm. we, would you mind if we parked on universal basic income for a second? Sure. You know, I just thought we could just you know really piss off some of my listeners. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I have people on all sides of the spectrum, but I I'd like to just dive in this just for a second and kind of hear your thoughts. Um, and so for, and again, because I have people on different sides, you know, of political spectrums, I've, here's what I've heard from UBI is you have one side that says, well, if you just give money to people, they'll be lazy with it. They won't do anything with it. It's not how economies work in general. On the other hand, you hear, as people are equipped with their basic needs, it allows them to then, it's not about indulging or, or, um, you know, you know, now I can go do all my hobbies. It's now that my most basic needs are covered. I can now be a more productive, high performing person because I'm not always worried about, it's like, I'm not always worried about what foods on the table at night. I can actually focus on my skill sets. Um, and I don't even really know what my question is other than, <laughs> <laughs> so other than I'll, I'll give you my, my personal experience. Okay. So I had a baby when I was 18 years old, not a bright idea at all. 
So I, I was on welfare. I was on public assistance for six months after I had my child because I was I had a full scholarship to UMass Boston, lost it um, because I you know I had a baby. It's very difficult to take a full load of, of classes and have a newborn. Um, I didn't stay on welfare, obviously. Um, I used that as as help up. So I do know that there are people because I've done it who they say holy shit, I'm in a bad situation. I need some help. And you use that help to get out of that bad situation. Of course, there are people that are, that are on, on the other end, but I think that the majority of people want to do the right thing. And so I think that I'm, I'm not the exception to the rule. So I think with UBI, I would not, you know, people would, would do more of what I did is like, that's, that's kind of their, their, their baseline. That's the help. And then you do what you need to do to, to move forward. And I just, I just kind of think about, I don't know if you watch the cartoon Wally where everyone's just like, Oh yes. Everyone's fat. And fat in there. yeah. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> if we don't, if we want that to not be what happens in our society, then I think that we need to take some steps to make sure that, that that isn't what happens. And, and one of those things is to make sure that if we do provide something like universal basic income, we do have something in place so that people can pursue other things. People can pursue entrepreneurship. Um, I worked when I first moved to Arizona for the Pima County One Stop, and we did a lot of retraining for um, miners who had been laid off. And they did things like, oh, we're going we're gonna to train these miners to be massage therapists. <laughs> it was the stupidest thing in the world. Like, it was just really, really dumb. And so they spent, the government spent tons of money training minors to be massage therapists and lo and behold, it didn't work. <laughs> so you've got to have a realistic plan in place for something like that. So that we do have universal basic income. We're not turning minors into massage therapists. We're, you know, having minors do something that's more realistic with their, their strengths and their, their wants and their abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to you. I, so when I, probably a couple of years ago, I, my work paid for me and a few others to go partner with this organization in Chicago and work with the homeless. And one of the things we had to do one day was we had to make a sandwich and then go find a homeless person and have lunch with them uh, and make a sandwich for them too. It's such a very small, innocuous thing. But what started to form in my mind, so afterwards we were debriefing with the person in charge of the nonprofit. And I kept saying, well, you know, it was interesting because they, yada, yada, they, they, they. And he interrupts me and he says, Blake, how do we go from they to we? Right. And I was like, I just felt so guilty in the sense of like, wow, yeah, I just, I've, it's easy to view people who have different needs from you as, as sort of like this. Um, other. Yeah, another. Exactly mm-hmm. right. And part of what I think about is, you know, it's like, I think what happens sometimes on any kind of welfare system or think about the person on the corner of the highway who's right. asking for money, you know, you'll have someone who they'll say, well, you don't want to give them the money because they'll spend it on, you know, the whole cliches, drug, right. booze, whatever. And it's like, yeah, maybe like one out of a thousand will. But I, I appreciate your comment on you weren't the exception because that's, I right. think that's what a lot of people do is they think that is the majority and the people who are using it correctly are like a small, it's like an assumption of like, of maliciousness in people. Yes. And yes. I don't know. It's interesting to think about though. And I think it's, it benefits us to flip that and instead be a lot more gracious and empathetic and giving. Empathy is, is the thing that truly is because when you do see it as the other, you know, you, you say I would never be in that position. And I think there are a lot of people that aren't that far away from being in that position, but you've, you've never sat down and really thought about it. Like what are the disasters that could happen to you that you would be in that position? Because you don't know what happened in that person's life for them to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'll never forget. We, we had a halfway house uh, near where I lived and I took a intact team to make dinner for this group of guys who were there temporarily and one of the guys shared his story and it turned out this guy who was a recovering drug addict 
used to be this major business owner. A lot of people there actually, they were vendors for that company and didn't realize this person was like the former CEO of it. And afterwards, as we were debriefing, one of the guys was like, I just never realized how many, how few steps it takes yep. to actually get to that point, yep. which is kind of incredible. And I've done that with a couple of people to, 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 for empathy to say, how many, how many steps are you from homelessness? Mm. Yeah. And then when you do it, some people are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's, yeah. even if it's, it's 10 steps, I mean, that can happen a lot quicker than, than you think. Mm-hmm. It feels like empathy is undervalued, mm-hmm. especially in corporate America, which it feels like it feels like there are elements of corporate America that are very driven on being driven and being authoritative. And, um, you know, so like from like a disc perspective, it's like someone who gets their results and they're like, yeah. oh, I'm not a high or a capital D. Right. Or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm supposed right. to be, though. I have to be. And it's like, yeah. why do you why do you have to be right? And it's interesting how, how a lot of people aren't, oh, great, I'm, I'm introverted and empathetic, you know, yay. But that's... And it's So DISC, I love DISC, but they do say that most of the CEOs are, are that, that high D. And you can be a high D and still be extremely empathetic. Mm. And I think that people don't understand, like, just being driven isn't about being mean. It's about yeah. results. <laughs> and you right. need results by being nice to people. And most often those results are better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's a, that's a gem of knowledge right there is that a lot of times people, and I've even seen the opposite happen where someone, they are the high D or they're something like that. Another personality test and they're like, Oh no, I must be so mean to people. And it's like, <laughs> no, why would you think you're mean to people? You know, just cause a lot of times we associate that, that, that directive person as being, cut and dry. This is how it is. Instead of realizing, I love what you said, you can get results and still be kind and empathetic. Yeah. And you can even be direct and be, be nice and kind and empathetic. There's nothing wrong with saying to someone, you know what, I'm going to have to stop you right there because I don't have, I don't have time for this full conversation right now. And I want to make sure that I give you my full attention. Mm -hmm. Let's schedule time later, later this afternoon when I know that I can pay, pay full attention to you. That second half though, right there, that's a great um, skill though, in the sense of a lot of leaders will stop with, I don't have time for this conversation right now, which, <laughs> which communicates, I must not be important. I don't value, you know, you don't value me, yada, yada. This person's never, I can never talk to them. Mm-hmm. But I love how you demonstrated the next step of, I want to give you my full attention. And then the actual actionable of, right. does, does this afternoon work for you? Right. Um, which a lot of people, I think if they, if they just did those extra steps, it would go a long way for their team. Oh, it'd be huge. It'd be huge because people will be like, Oh, he does. He does care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going back to something, not to flip flop across conversations though, something that you were talking about too, is sort of like this, um, you know, you mentioned the minors getting retrained for massage therapist. So here we have a university here, the university of Arkansas. And one of the things that they're looking at, we actually have this really large, um, I don't know what to call it. People who, um, they're not refugees, but they've basically, some of them are refugees, but many others are just, they, they have come through here through a nonprofit that is trying to help them just, just, just develop a better means for the life. And one of the things that we're running into is it's sort of like the cliche of minimum five years experience or three years experience that a lot of corporations or companies will ask for. And it's figuring out, okay, how do we, obviously these, these people need their basic necessities now. How do we get them into a position that they can start being trained and developed? Because they want to, they're well-meaning, right? but they don't, they don't have five years of time to, you know, and so, I, and so yeah. there's a bit of a disconnect there even of what does it look like to train and retrain people who maybe were very uh, agrarian in their former culture and now they are in a more... Uh, I don't know, startup focused culture or a more corporate culture or um, does that make sense? It does. And one of the things that I think kind of companies in general need to do a better job of is recognizing that um, someone's work outside of this country is still work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times people will say, oh, it's, you know, three to five years of experience needed, but they're like, oh, you did this in the Ukraine. It doesn't count. 
well, what, why doesn't it? Or is that not a place? <laughs> so I think that it's, it's actually, it's, it's horrible when it happens because we have people that come here for help and then we, we don't help because we say that their experience isn't, isn't valid. Well, it seems like part of that is like the ethnocentric people thinking, well, America is, right. you know, and I'm not anti-America for our listeners, but you know, just, just <laughs> the thinking of, of, you know, it's, it's so funny hearing that example you just gave, because I just talked to someone the other day who was mentioning a friend who was an engineer in Japan and was like, well, I don't know if they know American engineering. And I was like, what is that? Math is math. Yeah. I was like, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Like are, are, is the context different? Sure. Are there some things that are probably going to be different? Sure. But to assume this person isn't qualified because right. they're not an American engineer is yeah. kind of interesting. And the thing that I, I want people to start thinking about is, you know, that non-American engineer may come and show you completely different things that, you know, save you time, money, and effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, this conversation has gone like so many different <laughs> ways and I really originally anticipated. Um, I, I think as we start to wrap up, maybe a good way to start winding down the conversation, you know, obviously things that you and I are both very passionate about is helping owners or just senior leaders understand how do you best work with people. One thing that I see that gets brought up a lot is this question of accountability and how do I hold people accountable and how do I, and it's actually probably the number one question I hear is how do I hold people more accountable? What, what advice do you have for that question? So I, I think it depends on who's, who's asking it. So if a leader is asking how do they hold their employees accountable, that should be a no-brainer. You should be having one-on-ones at least monthly with your employees so you know where they are, you know what they're doing. And if they're not doing something, you can course correct quickly. Um, if it's the, the senior level leader asking what they're doing with their leaders, it's, it's the same thing. I think the further up the food chain you go, um, they start to, to not do the things that we teach as fundamentals. That CEO should still have one-on-ones with his direct reports. Mm-hmm. Because if not, how does he know what's going on? How does, how does he yeah. know to hold anyone accountable? Well, there's this weird like George Costanza effect of always being, <laughs> like, always being busy. And it's strange right. to me how, and I, I love what you just said because I think you're spot and it feels like this weird and it's like a phenomenon. It's like the higher up you get, and I get it. I mean, you're the higher echelons, you're, you're more responsible for the business. So it makes sense that you would be busier, but yet it's, it's like the higher up you go, we forget our basics of like mm-hmm. talking to our people and meeting with our people and, and more than just the, you know, I was talking to someone about, he has a team of eight people and I said, well, what would it look like to have a 10 minute conversation every week right. with each person? Hey, what's going on? What are you working on? I would never have time for that. Okay, what about every other week? I wouldn't have time for that. What about once a month? I definitely wouldn't have time for that. What is? What exactly are you working on? Right. Where you know, are you like, spending your time? You know, it's just interesting. I don't know. But I think that's... I say it's not time management, it's priority management. Because what are your mm-hmm. priorities? What are you prioritizing over your employees? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a valuable insight because I, I think you're right. It feels like, especially as you get higher up and you you have a greater visibility of everything that could potentially go wrong, it feels like the answer actually is less time management and more priority management. It's like I was talking to one owner who he has a fully remote team and it's 13 people. They're all remote, but they, they work in the same city. They just all work from their own homes. And he was about to plan like two or three weeks of going to each person's house to like inspect their work station, so to speak. Wow. <laughs> and it's, and it's, but it's because someone told him this is what you need to do. And so he was like, okay, yeah. So as I'm talking to him, he's about to start this endeavor. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Well, I need to hold him accountable. It's like, well, what's revenue been like? Oh, they've tripled it in the last nine oh, months. <laughs> and I was like, you're about to take almost a month out of your fiscal year doing something totally meaningless. Right. And right. so it's, it's prioritizing something that is not of no value. Zero right. value. And exactly I right. No value, but I can't imagine if somebody... If my, my boss said, I have to come inspect your home office. Right. What? <laughs> yeah, I think psychopath. Yeah, how, about you, how about you have a happy hour to reward us for, you know, tripling that revenue? Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's something else I'd like to ask you about too is reward structures in businesses where, so like, you know, revenue gets tripled and I give you a 
$20 gift card to Applebee's. Right. You know, right. no one goes to Applebee's anymore. So I, I've, just, I've never been fond of Applebee's. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, I run into these interesting dynamics where I, I see one owner, like there's one owner who I really respect. It's, it's a smaller business. It's, it's just over a million in revenue. It's a not for profit. Mm-hmm. And she gives out four and five figure bonuses. And it's not, it's not just free money. It's, it's tied to their performance, but it's, Hey, we did really, we hit, we got over a million. Here's a, you know, $12,000 bonus. Here's an $8,000 bonus. And then I see other corporations where they're very large and they're achieving incredible things. And the rewards don't scale. Yeah. Rewards aren't scaling at all and they're meaningless or it's, you know, and it's just, it's weird to me. It's, it's really it's, weird to me. And it's not just like prioritizing your time, but it's prioritizing your budget. Right. Yeah. And I love how your answers are so simple too. <laughs> <laughs> Which, but that's, I, I say that, I, I say that intentionally because that's been my approach to business is there are some very basic, simple fundamentals. Right. And you're making it more complicated than it has to be. And that really is nine times out of 10 the problem. It's like you, you're just kind of spinning in circles thinking of an answer but it's like the, the answer is right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's like someone I talked to who he was really struggling with this employee who was a terrible boss, uh, one of his terrible managers. And it was, okay, well, you know what you need to do. So, yeah. and about right. two months later, well, I'm still kind of hoping he <laughs> was like, well, it's been two months since we last talked. It's been mm-hmm. like eight months since you first noticed this. How long are you willing to wait before right. you actually do something? How much damage are you willing to put up with? Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really great. I, I, yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else no, you want to mention? I, I, this or? has been great. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, for my listeners who want to follow up with you and want to follow your content, what does it look like to be connected with you? Um, most of my content's on LinkedIn. So hashtag the corporate fixer or um, search me, Tamika Sears, and just connect with me. And like I said, most of my stuff's on, on LinkedIn. And see, now I'm a, an idiot because I called you Tamika and it's Tamika. Every, everyone does. <laughs> Don't worry that's, about it. That's the risk of us not speaking before yeah, the actual yeah. podcast yeah. episode. Yeah, it, it, it happens literally all the time. Yeah. So now I'm the jackass to my listeners. But <laughs> oh, no. even when I go to Starbucks, like I literally just say, my, I just give my last name because when I say it to me, they're like, huh? Don't worry yeah. about it. Okay, cool. Well, this has been fun and we'll, we'll have to chat again sometime soon. Absolutely. So, Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Great.